Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. And we're back after high altitudes, sleep deprivation, and some minor, if not major, dehydration. Mark and I are now home after the Vortex Extreme. So for those of you not familiar, we did a few episodes on this all kind of back-to-back last year for the last Vortex Extreme. First one that was in Wyoming. And that'll give you get you real up to speed on exactly what it is. But to give you the Spark Notes version, essentially what we were going here to shoot, long-range match. Did we already talk about this in the first episode? I think so, yeah. Yeah, we already did. Okay, long-range match, kind of quasi-hunting, kind of PRS, you know, a little bit. You got to hike there between each stage. I'd say it's a hybrid long-range slash with a hunting flare with a physical element. Right. So that's what we were shooting. And if, as you pick up now, one thing that Mark and I had to do before we went out there was test these reloads that we did. We had to test these reloads that we made, right? Mm-hmm. Looking back on it, as we talked with Nick and Tony and Ryan Hay... They brought up a bunch of stuff that I think was really valuable information as to how to really test, find a node, find these velocity stuff. That's something that, had we had more time, we certainly would have done. Right. In this particular case, we were pressed for time. Which, as I've talked to more and more reloaders, it sounds like they're almost always pressed for time. Every time a match comes up, they're staying up late the night before, chucking a bunch of bullets and brass, you know, and powder and all that stuff. And they're really trying to cram this stuff out, which... I think that's just life. I think that's just it's life, we- but I just think that's also just reloading. I think you're always going to be pressed for time. Yeah. But had we had more time to go out and do all these different tests, perhaps probably load up a number of different types or, or different, um, what's the, charges and things like that, we probably would have been able to eke out more accuracy out of our setups, but what we did was Mark and I went to the range and we essentially copied the factory's load, right? Mm-hmm. We went into the handbook in this case and we looked at what Hornady recommended for the 6.5 Creedmoor load with a 140 grain ELD match mm-hmm. bullet. And we took what they had and just loaded that up. So essentially we were shooting very close to factory ammunition, but what you might be able to say is that our ammunition, hopefully, if we were doing it right, was perhaps just a smidge more consistent because we're hand-loading it one by one rather than it being mass-produced. That's not to go and say that Hornady's ammo is inconsistent uh, by any means, but perhaps we were able to just, when you're putting that all that time and attention to detail in just one load, I would venture to guess personally, and I don't even think it's anything against any ammo loading company ever, factory mm-hmm. loading company. I just think if you're doing one by one, hopefully you're more consistent. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, right? And I think we did show Jim, or I mean, I guess, you know, kind of interesting, an interesting case study. So I've shot the Hornady factory ammo. I've got a couple different 6.5 Creeds, and it's always shot phenomenally, right? Yes. In the rifle that I selected to shoot for this year's Vortex Extreme, we shot the factory ammo, and it actually shot really well. I think it was MOA. We were shooting sub-MOA. Yeah. yeah. Just just shy of MOA. Yeah, but when we did the hand loads, it tightened up considerably. I've never seen anything like it. You were sub-0.1 MOA, I'm pretty sure. Now, you know, I mean... I mean, it was one hole. Again, aside, yeah. we didn't shoot a ton, you know, but I think we shot enough to validate that that was, you know, considerably 
better. Now your rifle, I think, was probably it was kind of indifferent. Like it was about that the was same, about wasn't it? Was about three quarter MOA, and then when we put our own reloads in it, oddly enough, nothing changed. Right. Whereas yours had quite, in the grand scheme of things, dramatic change. Mm-hmm. When you actually look at it on paper, you say, you know, well, is it a is it a dramatic change in terms of you know we went from sub inch to you know very 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 fraction of an inch. You know, that's not a huge difference, but as you stretch out your range, it can make a big difference. Mine just remained pretty much three-quarter MOA group, which I found kind of odd. Mm-hmm. It was strange. Mm-hmm. We shot that, though. We validated it at the range. We wanted to make sure that we were at least grouping. And then as we did that, that was just at 100 yards. Then we took it out to our uh, local farm, which has quite some distance to shoot at, and we shot out to 700 yards and even out to 1,000 on that day. But that day had... Mirage, Mirage. It was challenging. I, those targets at, at those extended ranges were really, I mean, tough to even see. There becomes a point where there's so much Mirage that it, you actually literally almost can't see the target. Right. It just all looks like you're looking through, it looks like you're looking through blown glass. Yep. That dry air of uh, Wyoming was nice to shoot in, wasn't it? It sure was. So much less Mirage. Now, there was still some, but there was far, far uh, less than we had here in humid Wisconsin. But we shot out to 700. I do recall my gun was shooting very consistently at 700, very accurately. Your gun was as well. We attempted to shoot out to 1,000. We were having some trouble. Who knows if we were even aiming exactly at the target because with Mirage, it bends light in all kinds of crazy ways. Mm -hmm. But we felt good enough with the fact that we were both so consistent at 700 and that we would take these out to the extreme. Got there. Obviously, now we're up about 5,500 feet in elevation, if I'm, you know, just Mm -hmm. estimating. And then we had to do a few more tests. This is where we essentially took our muzzle velocities to be the same. You know, perhaps there's some differences and things in that. You know, I don't know if you really boil it down. there There may be a few differences. But we took our muzzle velocities as essentially the same and then had a Kestrel with us. Mm -hmm. We had Nick Loffenberg. He was there with us at the extreme. He had a Kestrel on him and got our appropriate atmospherics. Should we talk about what a Kestrel is? We should. That's a good point. It's basically a handheld weather station. Yeah. And it's giving you the... The density altitude. The density altitude, which combines your barometric pressure, your altitude, and the temperature, and the... Hold on. I'm probably not exactly right. I know you have barometric barometric pressure, you have temperature, and you have humidity. Because I think barometric pressure also plays in your altitude. Because, mm-hmm. like, for example, I just got this new watch, you know, and it, it can do your barometric pressure. And what I've heard, you know, is that, for example, when a storm is rolling through, your your barometric pressure will drop. Right. And this watch, for example, also tells you your altitude. And these are all very, it's, I, they're all very rough estimates. But the altitude in this watch bases its altitude on the pressure. So if the pressure drops suddenly because a storm is coming in, it's kind of interesting. I've heard many people will note that they might not be moving at all, but their watch will tell them they're increasing in elevation. No way. Yeah, because the pressure is dropping, which would normally be what would happen as you go up in elevation. Okay, okay. But essentially what's happened, though, what what it's all boiling down to and what this Kestrel helped us determine is, is this density altitude, which as you go up higher in elevation, your bullet is just encountering less resistance against the air atmospherics as it flies through the air. And as it encounters less resistance, it's able to carry its speed for a longer period of time. And 
if it carries its speed for a longer period of time, it doesn't slow down as much. So in theory, and in actuality, it is in the air for a less period of time, all else similar, talking about the same distances and things. So if it's in the air for a less period of time, gravity has less time to affect it. So in essence, if we went out and we didn't even change anything about our dope, we just took dope from you know 800 feet of elevation in Wisconsin or wherever we were at, then we went out to Wyoming at a significantly higher elevation. In theory, we'd be shooting over quite often because mm-hmm. we'd be compensating for how much gravity would be affecting our bullet over a longer period of time in Wisconsin. And so we would be shooting over on every shot. It's important to consider anytime you go out west or anytime you go from a high, well, low to high or high to low too, because right. if you go high to low, then you're probably going to be shooting under. So elevation is very important and just, you know, this whole density altitude thing. Temperature. Temperature, yeah, humidity. So anyway, that's what we did there. Now on to the extreme. You and I went out, we shot the extreme. One thing that I did find interesting was that when we shot the extreme, Mark and I started at 5.45 a.m. Mm-hmm. When we actually took that reading off of Nick's Kestrel the day before, it was a very similar day, so we were, we were lucky to have a very similar day. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll say a couple of things here. If, if you can picture this in your head, the extreme has almost two halves. Pretty actually much does have two halves separated by base camp. On the west side of base camp, you're a little bit lower than the east side of base camp. Mm-hmm. And the west side has five stages. The east side has five stages. And on the west side, I would say in terms of how much lower you are, it's, what do you think, seven, 800 feet? I, I think you're right in there, yeah. Somewhere about there. So we had that difference. We had the difference of the fact that when Nick used his Kestrel to get our density altitude and everything up at the uh, stage eight, I think it was, which is on the east side, which is up at a higher elevation. It was also later in the day, so it was much hotter. Mm-hmm. So we went on, and we didn't have Kestrels on us. This is one thing that I now am really starting to see the value of, just this mobile weather station or some way to get your density altitude that you can plug into your ballistic solver. Because as we started out, it was much chillier. In fact, we were wearing, like, I was wearing long pants, and I was wearing even another layer on top of my already long sleeve Sun Slayer hoodie. Much chillier. Different elevation slightly. And I think our dope was off because we missed a fair amount at the beginning. We hit some targets, so we didn't miss all of them. But we were missing more than I thought we should have been. With dialing, our dialing was right. Our parallax was right. I definitely had a lot of shots that I broke that I felt really confident about. Yep. And they would miss. And I'm not going to go in to say that it was all the dope and it wasn't just me. Right. But later on in the day, when it got hotter and pretty much to identical situations that we had Nick with his Kestrel out, which was our last density altitude reading, and then we got up on those higher up stages, all of a sudden we were hitting a lot more. Yep. Yep. Well, and interestingly, I mean, I was getting a little frustrated on the front side or, you know, that west side that we started on because were the shots difficult? Yes. Were the positions or some of the positions uh, challenging, you know, you're not just necessarily laying prone on a mat, right? Like, you right. know, there were some where you were like almost like on a, on a berm where your body was hanging down the hill and you're resting kind of on top. I mean, some interesting oh, it was like stuff shooting there. from a water slide at one point. Yeah, exactly. But my shots were feeling like they were breaking really well. Mm-hmm. And or, we, knew your at, you knew, we knew your rifle was accurate. Right. And so I think a couple things were coming into play. And I actually I want to bring up a conversation I had with some of the Hornady guys mm-hmm. post-event, which I kind of said, well, that information would have been helpful about five hours ago. <laughs> 
But all my impacts, at least visually, I was like high right, high right, high right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, considerably like to where like I'm like, I'm like, how am I pulling these shots high right? Because I think intuitively if I was gonna pull a shot, I'd probably pull it low left as a right hander. Well, you're a right hander. I would expect that as you pull on the trigger, you move your rifle like the buttstock of the rifle down into the left a little bit, which would, in theory, push high right. Well, so, okay, maybe I got that backwards. So we've dispelled that myth. But also, in chatting with those guys, and they brought up a lot of science. They're pretty smart guys. Pretty sciencey. But what I came away with was, I guess, kind of like a, uh, a rule of thumb or an adage or something like that, where they said, sun's down, gun's down, sun's up, gun's up. Are they speaking then to his sun's down, gun's down, like your barrel should be pointed down a little bit, like you're going to mm-hmm. be high? Mm-hmm. And then and it sun's g- up, gun's up, so you got to bring it up a little bit more? Yep, and where I think that comes back to, and gosh, I wish those guys were here right now, but essentially it was light rays being bent differently when the sun's down versus when the sun's up. Oh, this goes into, I, I remember hearing them discussing this. This is quite a crazy phenomenon that they chat about. It, it really is. And then additionally, they said, like, if it's like just kind of like a gray day, then it's like uh, like neutral, I guess. Like if you've got a lot of cloud cover and things like this. So it's neutral. So I, I found that interesting. The other thing they said, and again, like, I guess if I was doing that, I mean, yeah, that might pull that high right naturally. Like we said, these shooting positions aren't, you know, perfect. But mm-hmm. they also said you might, a shot that's just high might appear like it's to the right, but it's actually not, if that makes sense. Right, because if you're shooting from, let's say, if you drew a line from you to the target, you might be, if where from where, the tar- from where a line would be perpendicular to the face of the target, if you're shooting off to the left of that and you go over the top and then you're shooting a hill behind it, it's going to look high into the right because the splash will be over the... It'll be... It'll be high into the right, but, but it could be... But where the bullet crossed the plane of the target yes. could have been exactly on. Exactly. This is where this is where spotting, a truly good spot, like to be a truly good spotter takes a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. It is not easy to be a good spotter because even for me sometimes, I'd be watching you and I, I would have to check myself a number of times because I'm looking through my scope. You would take a shot and I would actually have to back away and look at you, look at the target, look where you were shooting from. Because I've seen it all the time. Even missing left can look like you missed right. Sure. Because if depending... Wait, what? On, yeah. Go, depending on where the target is, if you miss just off the left side and the bullet travels behind... I mean, this has to be at a pretty significant angle. Oh, I see what you're saying. But if it yep. travels then behind the target and makes a splash on the, yeah. the right side of the target, I could say you missed right. The really confusing one is when you miss just off to the left or just off to the right, depending on your angle, and the bullet splashes directly behind the target, and you're like, dude, I think you just actually uh, made a hole in the target and shot right through it. Right. <laughs> well, I even I had one scenario where I was hunting one time. Now we're kind of sidetracking <laughs> here, but I was hitting... Anyway, essentially, my impacts... It was windy, right? Mm-hmm. So it was tough to read the wind, and my impacts were hitting in the dirt, and then... By the time the person I was with, the the dust would come up, but the wind was taking it pretty quickly. Yeah. So by the time he saw the dust kick up, it had actually moved. And so what he was calling was vastly different from where my impacts were hitting. Right. Yeah, that dust can help you, but it can also trick you. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. Backtracking a little bit and getting a little bit outside the competition, go back to the reload thing. One thing I will mention... This is totally going to just throw a wrench in it now because I'm going to talk a little bit of logistics too. We did realize, so we shipped our ammo out there. 
Mm-hmm. And I screwed up so many times with those stupid plastic bins that people put their loaded ammunition in. Right. So many times. I thought they were all the same. They are not. There's pistol ones. There's small caliber ones. There's large caliber ones. I ordered a pistol one. Then they were too tall for it. I ordered a small caliber one. The 6.5 Creedmoor wouldn't fit in there. It was too big around. Anyway, I wound up throwing it all in a box of ammo that we had, or an empty ammo tin that we had laying around here in the behind us in the podcast studio with some bubble wrap around it, hoping and praying that all of our little polymer tips wouldn't come out just totally bent to heck by the time we got shipped there. Which they seem fine. They seem fine. They shot pretty well. Uh, you did have, we did have one mm-hmm. proper little plastic bin that you took out there. We took a total of 300 rounds out there. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think we came back with only about maybe like 10 to 20 extra. Yeah. Even though the competition together, we needed 160. We shot enough the day before. Um, that was where actually I hit a 1280 with the Ruger American and our reloads. That was pretty cool. That's awesome. And then you, I think, hit at 1160 or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you essentially traced a traced a target around the target at 1280. I don't know how the heck that happened. Uh, it was just wind. Right, um, wind. And me. Right, right, left, right, left, and me. Right, right. You know what I mean? Wind is insane in all those hills and those mountains. I mean, I just probably happened to break just the right shot at the right time where the wind was happening, you know, either died down or kicked up to fix my error or something. But you shot only 15 seconds later, and it was dramatically different. You center punched that thing, too. In fact, I think we were going to try and take a picture of it, it, and then we never did. Yeah. But we shipped our ammo out there. It made it. We bu- we bubble-wrapped it even in an ammo tin can kind of thing, and it, it made it out just fine. You took yours in one of the 100-round plastic things. You checked yours, correct, on yeah, the I, flight? I put it in my suitcase. There's sometimes, baggage, yeah. with some airlines, I think they have a limit on how much ammunition you can carry in your case. So I think... You know, either, I don't know how much it is, but I know you had 100, you made it through, you're on United. All this could change, very likely, so don't take anything we're saying if you happen to listen to this, even a week later. Just check check out how oh, the yeah. whole airline and everything works. It may be best to ship your ammo. Well, and you'd think all this would be uniform as far as, and a lot of it is as far mm-hmm. as traveling with firearms and, and ammunition, but it seems like, you know, depending on the day or the person or the airline, there can be some, right. you know, differences. Right. I checked my gun. I think you checked your gun. That worked out just fine. Mm-hmm. Easy. Got there. Everything. Uh, back to okay. Back to the event. I had to throw that out there because I want to make sure we didn't we didn't forget that because both of us were scrambling quite a bit. All of a sudden, we had all this loaded ammunition, and that was another thing too. If you're really crammed for time, and you're thinking, you know, my match is on Friday, so I've got the whole week. Let's say somebody comes mm-hmm. in and they're thinking this on Sunday night. They just got back from whatever they were doing. They're thinking, okay, match is on Friday. I've got all week, Monday through Thursday, to load my ammo. Well, if you are just finishing those loads on Thursday, you better have a way to get them there. Yeah. You know, and I think that's kind of what we came down to because we were hastily loading ammunition. We came in on the weekends here in the in the mini studio where we're at. Yep. We were loading as many as we could, as quickly as we could, and all of a sudden we realized we got to fly out to Wyoming, and this ammo's got to meet us there. And luckily, you were able to take some on it. We overnighted the rest of it, but... Well, normally I'd just throw a bunch of boxes of ammo in, but right. we only, at the time, we only had the 100-rounder. Yeah, and we you didn't were have waiting on getting boxes. the other cases that didn't ended up not working. Yeah. So, and I think... The last of the ammo we loaded, I think we on we, Thursday guys, or Friday. We know, left Monday, on, Monday. I don't know something yeah, like that. Anyway, yeah, you classic. guys left Tuesday. The last of the ammo we loaded on Monday. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah. So things to consider though when you're reloading more logistics. Overall though, you know the competition went well. As we said, that first half we struggled a little bit. 
We had some hits, but we struggled overall. Mm-hmm. Kind of we're kicking ourselves, wondering what the heck's going on. Well, I to rem- the point where I was like, I think something's wrong. Right. And, and, I, and I'm not I'm not claiming, I, I, I feel like I need to caveat this constantly. I'm not the best shot in the world, but, like, I think oftentimes you know, like, did I did I or didn't I break a good shot? Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's definitely times where you're like, that should have hit. Yeah. If you're if you're not even you don't even have to be a professional shooter to imagine what we're discussing when we say, you know, knowing whether or not you broke a good shot. Everybody who's good at anything knows when you did it well. Right? You've mm-hmm. done it enough times that you at least know when you did it well. I used to play basketball. There are some shots where they roll off your fingertips and they're not even hardly in the air yet and you know it's going in. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to, you know, it's just it is what it is. You've done it enough times that you know what feels good and there are shots as well very often happened for me where it leaves your hand. You're like, yep, that's going to miss. Right. Yep. You don't even have to think about it. Same thing goes for shooting. There were definitely shots where I'm like, you know, you'd hear the, I pulled it, you yep. know, and then some shots where you pull the trigger and you're like, unless there's some crazy wind that should hit it. Right. So anyway, but yeah, we felt a little funny on that first half. Then we got out to the second half felt tremendously better. It was like a light switch. I know for me, it definitely felt like a light switch. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. next stage, I hit six out of eight, and I think you hit six out of eight. Uh, yeah, something like that. The next stage after that, I hit five out of eight, and you also hit five out of eight. Right. And it was it was all of a sudden, it was quite a bit better. And but, going back to it, about that time, either maybe mm-hmm. we were a little bit warmed up, right? Yeah. But about that time, the conditions became more identical to when we kind of yeah. validated our dopes. And that includes elevation, temperature, and lighting. Time of day, yeah. I mean... Everything. Yeah, it was very, very similar. So we kind of observed real time the effects. I would say that's personally what I chalk it up to. Right. The shooters remain the same. The guns remain the same. The ammo remained the same. We're picking it out randomly. It's not like we picked up, oh, this is the good lot and this is the bad lot. It was all thrown in there. Mm-hmm. So many things stayed the same. But we changed the elevation. We changed the time of day. We changed the temperature and stuff like that. I felt like it was real time watching how those things can affect bullets. Kind of neat. One thing that I want to talk about, in relation to all this stuff, Jim, is parallax. Yes. And I saw a lot of shooters out there who didn't even know they had one, a knob to adjust that. Which can change a lot of things. And actually, that's one thing that I wonder about some of the shots that I was taking mm-hmm. was did I have my parallax? Did I forget to adjust it? Or also, did I not adjust it properly? And then we're talking about, you know, when you're shooting off a bench. Right, you're generally super comfortable, right behind the rifle, good all the time. Weld. Good cheek weld all the time in the world. Here we weren't. No awkward positions, not solid cheek welds. Sometimes you know, particularly when you had some of those high angle shots. Oh, yeah, shooting off your pack, Shoot, you know, whatever. You know, and then and so then I wonder, even some of these shots that essentially like visually, it looked good to mm-hmm. me. Right, like break the shot looks good. I'm on target. But maybe I wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quite possible that bullet actually went exactly where, where I had it pointed. Yeah, exactly. I definitely saw that a lot. I saw, especially on that, the after we got done, I went and helped out with the ROs on the water slide stage, I called it. Stage two, where essentially, I mean, literally, if you can imagine, like, a slide of very dry dirt, people laying down on that at quite an angle, and then the rifles being then up and flat on a nice perch of grass at the top of this hill. I mean, it 
you'd get behind your rifle and you'd be looking through your scope and then meanwhile just slowly sliding down. And then you try and kind of wiggle your way back up and then you get back on and you'd slowly start to slide down again. It was crazy. And I saw so many people who went up there and they didn't touch their parallax knob. Now, I know some people adjust their parallax before they get to a stage. Sure. Before they start shooting. But the long target was 1,200 yards and the short target was somewhere in the mid 400s. Mm-hmm. So that's a fair difference there. It's a big difference. And um, yeah, some people didn't touch their parallax knob the entire time. And I'm thinking to myself, they're sitting there kneeling, cross-legged. Some people tried laying on their packs to avoid sliding down. Some people were doing like, I mean, I, I saw like every contortion of the body to avoid sliding down as possible. And I'm thinking to myself, there is no way that you are always having a consistent cheek welt, especially when you're transitioning between no. targets while all doing that, all that stuff's happening. Somebody's timing you behind you and um, can definitely make definitely make a difference. Parallax is The parallax knob on the side of my scope is always the first thing that I think of. Yep. Even before, I actually die up before I even touch my elevation turret. Well, that's going to help with your, you know, I guess for lack of, like image focus as well, right? Yeah. So... So that was a big thing. Speaking of, of course, dialing, you know, one thing that those Kestrels, and I guess maybe there are other kinds of mobile weather stations out there that I, I can't I think of off the top of my head, but the Kestrel has sort of been designed around shooting, right? Because it also has ballistics inside. And a wind meter. And a wind meter. And so it not only can tell you, hey, this is the barometric pressure, which in theory you could take and plug into another ballistic solver, but you can also plug in all of your ballistics and things like that into this thing. So it can just tell you real time, hey, I'm sensing these are the conditions. I know your rifle. If you tell me that you're shooting at this distance, this is what you should dial into your turret. I do think that that maybe could have helped us out a lot. But anyway, you know, having all of our dope ready ahead of time was pretty big time. We calculated that all out the night before. Again, you know, would have been nice to have real-time data, but we just did it based on what we got at the top of the hill at, like, 10 a.m. the day before. And uh, it was good to have it all on hand ahead of time, but we dialed our turrets a lot on occasion. I know that in my scope, when we had to dial out past 12 mils, I ran out of elevation. I was just using then the rest of the reticle. I dialed in as much as I could. I know yep. I had 11.9 in my scope that I could dial from where I was zeroed, and then the rest of the way I just had to hold. Yep. And those were tough targets. I couldn't tell you that even if I had the extra adjustment, if I would have been able to hit that target or not. Right. Because a lot of those, then you're talking out over 1,200 yards. You're shooting through mountains, shoot through valleys, through all kinds of little fingers and weird things. I mean, it was was a bit of a prayer. I don't think I hit any of those on the day of the competition. But I don't think I did either. um, But that's what I had to do, for example. You know, I know some people get a little bit freaked out, you know, when they run out of elevation or... But you can use that reticle then. You can, you know, and and I've seen a couple guys, and I forget myself just because when I shoot at extended ranges, I like to dial and hold dead on. That's what I've practiced. That's what I'm comfortable with. Like, I think mentally, like, holding off that center crosshair, like, it's just... It makes sense. It makes sense, right? Everything's centered up. Uh, However, though, like, I do know, I want to say it was, like, one of the first Vortex Extremes. I know a person, they had something go gunny sack with their setup. They somehow lost their zero. They didn't set their zero stop correctly, but they they were able to find their zero. So they had, the gun was zeroed when the turret was in essentially a static position. And they didn't know. They're like, well, great. This is all I know. And then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off. Wait a minute. I can just hold off my reticle. So they essentially, they had a first focal plane reticle. 
Nice to have. And uh, so they just used their reticle to shoot the rest of the match once they kind of got that sorted out, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. So That is. Speaking of gear and your scope, mm-hmm. let's talk about guns and things like that at the Extreme. Every year at the Extreme, I think I've seen plenty of people come out, and it could be by pure chance. It could be that they just didn't check it beforehand, whatever. But people run into issues like that one that you just mentioned there. Myself, I ran into issues at the extreme. Every stage, you said it best, was a fiasco. Yes. Because what I was working with was I have my beloved five-year-old or however old it is, Ruger American Predator and 6.5 Creedmoor. It's been, I've used this thing for so, so long. We did 1,000 yards for less than 1,000 bucks with that gun. We've done all kinds of other videos with that particular rifle. Uh, I love it and I hate it. Um <laughs> Because it is very accurate. When everything around the shot is done and it's just on you to pull the trigger and let it go bang, it's incredible. After it goes bang, it's all a complete nightmare. And uh, that's what we saw here because I'm using, you know, the Magpul stock, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's supposed it takes these Magpul mags, and I just think that's the thing, is I tried using a non-Magpul mag with this AI pattern, I think it is, mag, one of their metal ones. I think, theoretically, it should have worked. In theory, I wouldn't doubt if I went on Magpul's website, it said, do not use the metal AI mags, and it said, only use Magpul polymer mags. I would not doubt that one bit. We should check that. I'm sure we should. But what I ran into was that the one that comes with it, which I didn't think I had to get another one, or I didn't think I had to try and find a bigger one, had held five rounds, and we are shooting eight rounds on each stage. And in my particular Ruger American, I don't know, it seems like this is just kind of the case with them, I can't sled load. I can't throw around in the open bolt in the chamber and just run it forward and let it go right into the chamber. I have to either load out of a magazine or I just have to load out of the magazine, actually. That's pretty much the case, unless in this particular case, um, oh, where am I? I'm getting ahead of myself. So anyway, I can't sled load, right? So I knew I had to be, I had to have a magazine that was capable of holding the amount of rounds that we had to shoot on this stage. Or else what I would have to do is, this is the kind of goofy thing that you have to do in, in the American I've found. If you want to, instead of releasing the magazine, putting more rounds in the magazine, throwing it back on the gun and then going, which I didn't feel I would have enough time for, what you can do is you can take a round and put it in the open bolt area uh, and then you just fish it down with your fingers and push it down in the magazine from there. And then when you run the bolt forward, it picks it back up out of the magazine. It's kind of a fiasco. It's very strange. So anyway, I was discussing this with uh, Mike Sewell and Nick Lofberg the night before. Mike found that he had one of these metal AI pattern mags that held 10 rounds. And I'm thinking, oh, this is awesome. We stuck it in the gun. It clicked up. It seated up. I can even run the bolt with no ammo in it. That was strange. I'm thinking, we're good to go. Everything's money. Never tested it, though. Go out to the event. You've put in a fully, you put in a loaded mag of any kind, even if there was like one round in there. Bolt wouldn't move. Wouldn't go forward at all. And um, I tried fidgeting with everything. Until, did you try forcing it? You know, I did. I learned that from you. Okay. Before I go, I am always going to blame the shooter and the user before I blame the gear. Yes. And I don't doubt too that there was a way for me to actually s- fix this issue on the cl- uh, like in the competition. Maybe. But the thing is, you're trying to shoot four targets that are probably over 500 yards away on the clock from a crappy position and also do it while somebody else who's next to you is is also trying to do it. And you're trying to help them out by spotting yep. them. 
you don't have time to think about these things. Maybe if you practiced all the time and you got in the right mental preparedness for this, you would have time. Maybe if you actually used your gear before you actually implemented it in a competition, you would have time. I just went in blind with this thing. So anyway, I had to dig my fingers inside this metal magazine and uh, with my middle finger, dig that in there, push the bullet forward. With my index finger, keep the next round down so it wouldn't get caught on the bolt trying to go forward then. As it managed to move its way forward, it would then pop out of the lips of the magazine, and then I would, with my thumb, move the bolt forward until the bolt was over the next round so the next round wouldn't get up in its way and cause it to stop. Then I could let my index finger out of there, and then I could, with my thumb, push the bolt forward. It would start to get that next round, kind of like wiggle it into the chamber, and then, boom, put the bolt down, and I could shoot. But every single time, it was insane. I, I have a lot of lost skin on that on those fingers there. it sounded quite painful luckily you kept your cool uh you didn't curse we only timed out on one stage too and it was just you didn't get to shoot one shot probably yeah. because of me and it was one of the closer ones and i actually hit the first one right that's what made me <laughs> I, sad yes that yes i know it, i mean it was such a i actually can't believe you got the shots off that you did like, i pretty it much was such spot for you but an, an ideal process right but as we were out there, we definitely saw we saw somebody strip a lesson, case hit. Lesson oh. here: test, test your, your test your gear, test your gear, and then and if you got something that's working, don't make a last minute change. Exactly. Uh, we saw somebody strip a case head and get a um, or something like that. They basically had a, a piece of brass stuck in their chamber, so oh, that happened. Yeah. Uh, I think that even happened last year too. It seems to happen um, from time to time. We had uh, our friends from Meat Eater. Ben O'Brien was out there. And this is another thing that I yeah, would say. Ben and Cal. Ben and Cal. But Ben O'Brien, in this particular case, he was using a gun that somebody else had set up. So he was not intimately familiar with it, right? He, and in those guys' defense, last minute call, oh, holy mackerel, right. we can make it down there. Exactly. No, this is, this is in this particular case, right? It happens. We borrow guns sometimes. That's a great quote. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Look, it happens. We borrow guns sometimes. Yeah, you know? So he was borrowing one that somebody else had set up. And so he wasn't as familiar with how this person, in this case, using a PST Gen 2, they must have preferred to not have the zero stop. Whoever set this up, they just said, you know what? The zero stop thing, maybe sometimes I'm going to feel the need to dial down from wherever I'm zeroed at. I think they were zeroed at 300 yards. Mm -hmm. So it's possible in that case that they would need to dial down. Okay, sure. And so what they did was they just said, I'll just set the zero stop way, way down at the bottom so that way it never gets in my way. Gotcha. My zero, and this person's mind probably they already knew where it was they were using that scope as though it didn't have a zero stop because it was set so far down out of the way ben didn't know that he goes in shoots a stage i think he actually did decent on his first stage because he was going from that zero next stage he went down he said okay i need to dial this so he went and hit that zero stop little did he know he was two revs off from the actual zero and then he was making all of his adjustments based on that he was shooting all wonky they did a little testing on the next stage on one of the near targets and figured out what had been happening. I actually think the rest of the match went okay for those guys. You know, they actually all things shot considered. really, really well. Yeah, once, once they, they sorted once they sorted that out. So gear can get you, and and I think a lot of times what it comes down to is is as much testing as you can possibly do beforehand in a similar scenario, the better. I saw some guys too. They were coming up on a stage, and this is something I haven't heard of before. I'd be curious, you know, people who are more knowledgeable about rifles and things. A couple of guys said that what was happening was they had suppressors on their rifles. They would finish a stage, 
and they would close their bolts once they had determined everything was clear and all that. They'd close their bolts to then put it in their pack and carry it to the next stage. So they had a hot suppressor that was keeping in a lot of heat. They'd close their bolt. All that heat was in there. They'd put it in their pack, which would keep all the heat in. So their rifle was getting really, really, really hot. Mm-hmm. And what I determined, I think, was that that was creating a lot of pressure in there. Or okay. something along these lines, because they said that after they had done a couple of stages and their guns were really hot, they blew out a primer on one. And then they were... Yeah, that they, makes sense. Something like that was happening. He showed me the case. He's like, yeah, check this out. It was a totally blown out primer. He said he took the shot and he instantly smelled the gas and he knew what had happened. Um, so anyway, those guys then had to actually, rather than carrying their guns in their bags, they had to then just hand carry them. That makes sense because cool down from some of our previous discussion with the guys around here, you know, I think essentially what you're putting that round almost into like an oven. Right. And so, then, you know, again, heat expansion, high pressure kind of, I guess. And then bam, blue primer. Yeah. So just all things that can happen out there. So the extreme, uh, takes no prisoners. No. So you got to be ready for it. But only, that's kind of only little- minor injuries ish or complications, you know, but nothing nothing too crazy. Oh so. yeah. No, and then and that's another thing too, just in addition to your gear when you're going out something like this, you yourself. Make sure you're in shape. Make sure you're drinking water. Adequately nutrin nu, nutritionized. Nut, yes. Nutria. Nu, nutria. Is yep. that how you say? Is it like uh, uh that's the rodent the Florida rodent. Oh. I believe. Oh, okay. It's not like uh when you say octopi or no. something. Okay. <laughs> All things that we ran into. What do you think now, though, Mark? Do we get into uh, what our thoughts on the actual process of reloading? We probably should. That's what this has all been about, right? Reloading to the extreme. Yes. What did we think about reloading, all the stuff it took, then going out and shooting a competition, a legit, long-range, tough competition with it? What are your thoughts? Oh, man. Okay, here we go. As much as I like to joke about, well, and I still do love factory ammo, but like, you know, ammo comes in boxes of 20. Uh, It's all I'll ever need. I'm not going to take the time to reload. Like, it's just tinkering for the sake of tinkering. I, I ended up ultimately liking a lot about it, and it made me, this little foray kind of made me want to potentially on specific occasions, probably not very often, maybe not at all, because time <laughs> is time. Reload. I was, <laughs> I, was, I was more than pleasantly surprised with how accurate our reloads were. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it amazing. You know, a lot of this information out there exists, right? Like, we basically grabbed a recipe out of the book, made the recipe, and it worked. Now, right. and it worked great. Right. Like you said, we didn't have a lot of time here, though. Very similar to cooking food. We could have tweaked the recipe and made it a bit better, but it came out good, as the book told us. Exactly. But like cooking, like who doesn't like to experiment a little bit, right? Right. So right. I think, you know, the loads that we made, I think, were, how do I put it? Like, I think they were, that recipe is made to work really, really well, but my guess is it's somewhat conservative, which I guess if yes. I was giving, you know, somebody a recipe to make uh, their own ammunition, I might be a little bit conservative when yeah. I give those directions. That well, said... It's just I, like with a food recipe, 
am I going to give somebody the exact amount of cayenne that I add into my dish because I like mine super mega spicy? Probably not. I'm going to tone that down or even say optional. Right. You know? So I think we could have probably gotten the same level of accuracy but had our rounds be a little bit hotter. And I guess by hotter, I mean, you know, uh, add a little extra gas, you know, they end up with a little higher, uh, with a higher velocity, Mm going to shoot a little bit flatter. Go transonic, which is essentially going from supersonic to not uh, a little bit later. Later on. So it kind of made, it kind of intrigued me to possibly potentially explore a little bit further. And, you know, and and I say this, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being, you know, going long here as per usual, but we had a lot of great teachers. Yes. We had a lot of resources here to help us along this path that maybe just like an average person going, I want to get into reloading, might not have their disposal. Oh, right. How many times did we say, uh, Ryan? Right. Yeah. A lot of comfort taken and having a muck and hern sitting next to you going, yes, you're doing that right. No, right. you're doing that. You know what I mean? Maybe on Whatever. But also through the process, it it definitely kind of like put me at ease that, well, wait a minute, with, with the right knowledge and the right tools, this is actually very doable and it's a little less complex than I maybe would have originally thought, even though you need a lot of equipment. Like it's definitely right. equipment intensive, but yeah, it can be figured out. I would absolutely never do it again. <laughs> You should have seen, we have a video, and and I'm sure it might make it into some sort of a compilation at the end here. Mark and I were giddy the first time that we shot these reloads. Both of us. Absolutely giddy at the fact that we had produced ammo by hand that shot so well. And it was only until I had come back in at one point, and I was prepping brass. You weren't here at this point, but I was prepping brass, and I knew we had to load up a lot of ammo, about 300 rounds that we were going to take out there. I prepped, deprimed, prepped, did all of this stuff until the tumbling process to 300 pieces of brass. This was exceptionally boring for me because all it involved was putting them on the thing, pulling the thing, doing some, I mean, it was, it was so boring, right? But I got through it and I was like, okay, right. all that time, cool. Now I kind of saw some payoff, right? Because I'm like, look at these 300 prep pieces of brass. Now we're going to do this cool tumbly thing take them out, put some powder and bullets in them. Ha, great. All of a sudden, I talked to Ryan and said, you know, Ryan, the weird thing about this brass, though, was is as I was prepping it, it like the turret was just on the, on the, the brass was just kind of hard to push down. Like a couple times I kind of had to force it, you know? I feel like I shouldn't have to do that. And he was like, uh, what? I was like, well, yeah, you know. And I kind of felt like I had to force it a little bit. And he goes, well, you shouldn't. <laughs> and so I took him upstairs uh, we found that the little primer poker thing was loose, and actually I had bent it, essentially, to hell in a handbasket. And that also had some things to do with, you know, the size and angle and things of the neck and whatnot. I don't know. Uh, long story short, 300 pieces of brass essentially wasted because we didn't fully trust it. And that's the thing. Maybe somebody's listening and they're like, oh, no, you would have been fine. I don't know if I want to take that bet when I'm holding 40, what was it, and a half grains of powder next to my face. And so... Yeah, not taking that chance. Right? And sticking it into a tight little chamber and stuff like that, that you just want to have a ton of pressure, and I had a suppressor on my gun, too, and it's like, do I want to blast a suppressor off? Do I want to... Whatever. So you don't want to take that chance. 
300 pieces of prep brass, all that time was essentially wasted. We didn't use any of it. In fact, it's still sitting over there in the tumbler, little Donkey Kong barrel. And um, we ended up just doing, you know, yet another 300 pieces of brass. We had to go down to the range, pluck them all up. We had to then come back. We we didn't tumble those because we didn't want to have to drain out all of the cleaning solution out of the tumbler and then, you know, get out all the little pieces of stainless steel and then dry those and stuff. So we actually... The, the ammo we used, Mark, we didn't clean at all. Right. The brass was not cleaned in any way. Still worked fine. I don't know if we can. you can do that over and over. At some point, it's probably got to get cleaned up. But after that, I remember thinking to myself, I hate this because there's definitely ways that it can go wrong. And what it all boiled down to, too, for me, is if you have the time to reload, and, this, and reloading is something you really like doing, I know people who love the monotony of it. It's mindless to them. Just enough mindless that it's relaxing, not totally mindless where they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, explosives, sure, whatever. Right. Um, but it, they just, they get in a routine. They like, there's some people where therapy for them is essentially becoming a robot, like a cyborg. Okay. Like, sure. if I do this, 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 done. This, 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 done. Like, that's resetting for them. For me, 100% no. <laughs> and uh, so I don't have the time for that. I don't have the patience for that. I, all the state, the steps and everything after a while for me got completely annoying. And uh, in the end, that was just to copy factory loads. And my particular rifle shot the exact same as the factory load shot. It was weird that yours actually shot so much better. Could we have done, you know, oh, hey, Jimmy, well, what you're going to do is prep up 100 pieces of brass, and these, you know, this one's going to be this charge, this one's going to be that charge, this one's going to be... Then you can go drive out to the range, which is 30 minutes away, take a couple hours at the range, get out your chronograph, get out this, that, and the other thing, shoot these, find this velocity note, go back, do these, load up more, find the thing, do a water test, water line test, all this stuff. And as it all got going, I thought to myself, I just don't think I like it that much, you know? And... I would rather be up underneath the car changing control arms or something or dropping a diff. That sounds more entertaining to me. Anyway, Jim, that was my take on it. Uh, you know that uh, human phenomenon when you kind of go through something and you only remember the good stuff? <laughs> no, because I only remember the bad stuff. <laughs> well, I guess I was going to follow that with, um, can I change my answer? Mark, I didn't mean to ruin it for you. I was really excited to hear, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners were excited to hear your positivity around reloading. You took it all away. I was surprised to hear how positive you were about it, and and because of your situation, you have two kids. You have a longer drive to work than I have. Well, all these things, and add that's up. why I was throwing in the caveats. Like I, so I found some things of it enjoyable and mm-hmm. uh, fun. Right, like yeah. you said, all the stuff you mentioned. Seeing you know, something maybe, that you handmade do well is so cool. It it's satisfying, but like you said, it is an involved process, and that's kind of why I was throwing the caveats in there, like possibly theoretically, you know, maybe if I had more time. But yeah, the reality of it is, is to do it probably right and get everything you can get out of it. You're gonna need some time, and it probably should be something that you love. Like, yep, that's your thing. Yep. And you know what? It is a thing for a lot of people, which yep. is awesome. So for those of you listening out there, just because I hated it doesn't mean you're going to hate it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that was my take on it. I feel like that's pretty much how I knew it was going to end up going into this thing. Just because, you know, with life, so many things, w- whatever is going to be your hobby is going to take up a lot of time. 
So if you right. try adding in more hobbies that are going to just going to take up more time, it's like you're just going to be taking away from your other hobbies. For me, the hobby has always been wrenching on cars. So any hobby that adds onto that will always play second fiddle and will always get time subtracted away from it if it's a toss up, yep. right? If I'm like, I could be in the garage underneath jack stands this weekend, or I could be out on the range testing reloads. 100% of the time, I know what I'm doing. I could see though, okay, and, and here's where here's where my 100% absolutely never again, but possibly if I had one hunting gun, one, and yep. I wanted it to be 100% perfect, the best accuracy ever, nothing wrong, you know, all this stuff, you get it. And I wanted to load up just 100 rounds to last me like a very long time probably in that particular case, enough where I could go out, test it, find the perfect one, do all the front-end work, and then just load up even 50 rounds. Even if I just only had to load up 50 rounds and that lasted me all that season, which definitely would, and that's the only reason I ever touched that gun or ever touched that ammo, and I knew it was perfect. It's all set to go. All I got to do is make sure my dope's right for wherever I am in the country or in the world. Maybe. That's where I'm at with it. Makes a lot of sense. Not in any kind of volume, though. Well, um, let me let me throw this though at you. Once you get all those things set up, mm-hmm. once you do it, really, what's the difference between fifty, one hundred, and three hundred? Right? You could really, and this would be a case where you could probably borrow somebody's stuff, sort, go through this process. Like you said, if you got one rifle that you know that shoots, maybe it's a cartridge that you like to shoot close range, long range, and it's capable of knocking anything down. You want to point it at you could load up 300 rounds the work is almost the same yeah and then you're really done at least for a while i mean for a long while yeah you know if you're talking kind of general side ends a little bit of practice and then hunting where you're generally not shooting a lot right right hopefully just one right well and that and that's i guess the real thing that is like if i did it again it would be for a rifle that is touched for no other purpose than probably hunting and requires low volume, very low volume, high precision. That's that's where I do it. I wouldn't do it in any kind of a volume. Like even no. this, we didn't do a lot. I mean, some people are probably laughing at three hundred rounds, right? Oh, seriously, yeah, totally. And I'm like, that's my max. Oh, yeah, too I much. I don't think we're talking anybody into it right now. But no. it might be for no, you. But you know what, though, it, it's just. It, it, it <laughs> I'm sure on all these podcasts leading up to this, though, as people are listening to guys like Nick and Ryan and Tony, and they're listening to, you know, like we talked to Trent, too, way back at the beginning of this podcast. Oh, yeah. Guy was stoked to load mass quantities of 9mm. Loves it. He loves it. That is awesome. Like, those are the kind of people that that is their therapy. That's awesome to them. They want to see their own creation go out and do well. They want to do it just the way that they want to do it. They're usually probably very much particular people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you look at Trent. He's got a wife, no kids. His wife has a horse. Oh, she's, she's gone anyway. Yeah, she's exactly. <laughs> you know, he's got uh, all the time in the world. Exactly. He's it, trying to fill his time. Exactly. Most of them too are shooting competition, so you know that shooting is already their hobby. So anything else that they can get their hands on that's related to shooting that they can be doing, you know, is is a huge plus for them, right? Like I know some people who'd rather put a spear in their eye instead of go to a car show. Right. You know, and so, but it, for me, it's like, oh, if I'm not working in a car, I'd rather be at a car show. Right. And if I'm not at a car show, then I want to go to whatever, you know, a race or something. So, yeah, this is like, if you are into shooting, if shooting is your thing, 
if you spend your time shooting all day, I dream about shooting your browsers right now. If you open up your internet, all your tabs are guns and various different shooting equipment and matches that you're thinking of signing up for things that are already added to your cart. If you're that person, I think reloading is for you. I think it's an awesome thing to add to your shooting repertoire. Hashtag agree. Yes. What'd you guys think of the first pod venture? That's what I'm curious to know about. As you're now sitting in your car, in on your lawnmower, at your desk, and you're, you have finally made it to the end of this pod adventure, reloading to the extreme. What do you guys think? I'm honestly very curious. This is the first pod adventure we've done yet. Did we convince you or unconvince you to reload? Do you want to go shoot a Vortex Extreme or a competition thing? Are you going to be going out and getting gear? We'd love to see what gear you got. If you are getting reloading equipment, what maybe you got that we suggested or what maybe you got that was better than what we suggested, uh, how the reloading process has gone, how the testing process has gone, suggestions, tips, tricks, whatever. Yeah, let us know your thoughts. And if Absolutely. they're negative, uh, keep them to yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. With that said, MC Ryan, we're going to give a special shout-out to, uh, as he has helped us out a long way on this pod venture, done a lot of crap behind the scenes that we otherwise wouldn't want to do. MC Ryan, there's a perfect example. All the stuff this guy does with sound, all the other audio-visual, you know, all these video things that he's doing. Now, there's an example. MC Ryan, that's what he's been doing since he's been a kid. I've known him since kindergarten. He's been doing this forever. I would never be able to have the patience to do all this. No. He has a natural interest in it. Exactly. Everybody has their own natural interests. MC Ryan, did we convince you to start reloading? It's another no. Shoot. Dang it. Well, hopefully we convinced you, Vortex Nation. Yes. Yes. All right. With that said, wow. This is so much different than signing out to a regular podcast. I feel like we're really ending something. This is, yeah, it's almost like breaking up, but in a good way. It's like, hey, we had a good run. Let's go hit the press. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.